I'm going to be very candid with you. We are living in a computer program reality. Welcome everyone to Simulation Nation, your portal to all things virtual. I'm your host, Johnny Android, and I'm here to keep you informed about all that's happening in the metaverse. We record our episodes live in Allspace every week, and you can join us from your PC or VR headset. Just log into Allspace, join our Simulation Nation channel, and teleport in to offer your opinion, question, or whatever else. Today, uh, we have with us a bunch of dickheads. Yeah, that's that's right. They are the fans of Philip K. Dick, who, of course, is our godfather and our uh, leader of our Council of the Wise. Um, and uh, these dickheads have a podcast called the Philip K. Dick Heads Podcast. Um, so on that podcast, uh, they beam a pink laser beam of science fiction facts straight into your brain hole. Don't want to miss it. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for authors David Agronoff and Anthony Trevino. Hey, thanks for having us on uh, Simulation Nation. This is super exciting. Yeah, yeah I'm absolutely. super stoked to be here. Absolutely. Like I was saying, I sort of, I feel like oftentimes I'm in a vacuum where I read a Philip K. Dick book and I want to like geek out with somebody. And uh, my wife does not like Philip K. Dick and I uh, don't have anyone to talk to. So I go to your podcast and I'm like, okay, these guys understand me. So I'm very <laughs> happy to have you here. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because I was thinking about this the other day and there are, you know, we do have a few detractors of people who, who don't like the podcast. I think partially because our focus is just the storytelling and Philip K. Dick, the writer. And we're not really like, we're not super into Gnosticism and we're not like, you know, we're kind of a little bit more into the storytelling than we are. Like the fact that the laser beams of truth and those kinds of things. Right. Right. So well, we tend to approach it as writers, I think, first and foremost. So so I apologize to all the older Philip K. Dick fans who get mad at us for not having like a, a PhD in Jungian theory and like the I was it the I Ching, the I Ching. I right. I struggle with a lot of that stuff just because I'm not I haven't been exposed to it. So right. Well, I guess, I guess that, I guess, speaking of the I Ching, I guess that in, is in the, in the foreword of Man at High Castle. Now we're already diving in, but doesn't he mention like a thanks to the I Ching or like he, he acknowledges somebody who taught him about the I Ching. So he was really into that divination stuff, which Jung was as well, I guess. Yeah. yeah he claims to have plotted Man in the High Castle using the I Ching and, um, uh, basically, uh, you know, not really having a plan for the plot and just kind of going by like reading things out of the I Ching and like going, going that way with a plot. I don't know how much of that is true, but uh, because that's one of the other things you learn when you do a lot of studying of, of Philip K. Dick is he contradicts himself a lot. And a lot of times he'll just say things to, to be provocative in the moment. And mm -hmm. so when you're, when you're doing an academic study of uh, PKD, the writer, you learn a lot of times that you can't, trust you have to look at multiple quotes to kind of figure out exactly what he was thinking because he can be all over the place with some stuff. right well if you were to sort of go back to the Jungian archetypes he's almost like the trickster archetype right where he's going to say things that are just going to uh either be strange or throw you for a loop or make you question something um also it just it makes me think of like the ubic character where it's like there he's selling like weird you know bubble gum or whatever and it's ubic bubble gum and it represents something grander than that and he yeah he he kind of you know and the other thing i think that people don't realize about Philip K. Dick and 
we'll get back on track at some point. We have any, we're just like totally going off already on a tangent, but, um, no, take it, take it off the rails. That's, that's something that I, I bully the other guys about on the podcast is that we don't get to go off enough tangents. So I'm here for it kind of um i was thinking about the fact that that's what uh william burroughs used to do right he used to cut out different parts of a page and then just paste it together differently and that's how he would organize his thoughts so that's kind of weird um i don't know he I, if you're going by the I Ching, that might be a similar thing with philip k dick i'm not sure but yeah it's a more philosophical way of doing that burroughs cut up method i think right yeah yeah. Well, you know, one of his biggest influences, one of his favorite writers when he was growing up was A.E. von Vogt. Um, and Vogt uh, used to plot by dreaming. Like he would uh, just take whatever he dreamed the night before and just, well, that's where the novel's going, which is one of the reasons why like World of Null-A can kind of feel like a total mess when you read it is because like, well, I guess we're dreaming about Superman flying in the clouds of Venus now. So that's right. what's going to happen in the novel. Right. And, uh, you know, but uh, Von Vogt was, you know, one of his biggest influences. Hmm. You know, it's, it's kind of interesting because, um, I, I sort of, I guess I sort of assumed that it was all from like his drug trips that he would go on because he was known for being, he did like sometimes a hundred, uh, pills of speed a day or, or in some of his novels. And, and so I just kind of felt like all his psychedelic experiences made their way into these, uh, stories that were about reality shifting and things like that. I don't know if there's truth to that, but it sounds like maybe there was something more deeply philosophical he was getting to, or, or the way he would approach it as opposed to just like, uh, you know, some kind of chemical working on his brain. Well, he, he definitely was all, not all about, but he was definitely popping the amphetamines like crazy in the early years. Right. Uh, he's, he walks back a lot of his statements about LSD. I've noticed, right, David, like you hear him talk about, Oh, I had, yeah. 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 Yeah, he so, tried so to he'll, claim that he hadn't done LSD until after he'd written Three Stick Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldridge, which yeah. you know we all agreed on the podcast was absolute bullshit. Um, because <laughs> oh, it's total BS. <laughs> right. There's no possible way he wrote Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldridge without actually having a bad trip, because uh, that's basically what the book's about. Um, and uh, so I, I think it would, came down to in the introduction to uh dangerous visions which was like the kind of the bible of the new wave of science fiction in the 60s edited by harlan ellison and harlan ellison's intro to the pkd story was basically like here's pkd he does shit tons of drugs and um i think uh phil was a little pissed at harlan for that um and felt like you know but but who doesn't get pissed at harlan right right Right, so, right, right. Well, his relationship with drugs is very similar to his relationship, I think, with his own beliefs and philosophies. Because if you notice in a, a lot of his work, he's kind of exploring different things like Gnosticism, the I Ching, uh, atheism, or uh, even stuff that I didn't even knew existed. You know, and that's the same kind of his relationship with any type of drug is he wants to experiment, but then he walks it back and he's like, no, not for me. So I never did it. Uh, But what Tessa Dick told me when I interviewed her in Colorado was that he's kind of known for blowing things up to sound cooler. Right. Essentially. Right, 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 right. 
I do believe that he did a lot of, of, uh, amphetamines to write, especially in the early sixties, right. uh, just to when he, there was this period where he was writing in a, in a little shack, a little, he called it the hovel, um, that was a, a short, like maybe like half a mile walk from their house. And that's where he wrote three stigmata. And in fact, between during the times that he wrote game players, of Titan and three stigmata of Palmer Eldridge, he claimed that this giant godlike being was staring at him as he walked through the hovel every night and judging him. And, uh, you know, so he, he had this feeling that this, you know, demonic God figure was, was appearing to him. And it was, I'm sure it's something to do with the drugs, but that's definitely where the idea of the three stigmata came from for sure. Right. Yeah. And he did, uh, he did after all have a, a big mental breakdown that probably had to do with his drug use. And that then went to that rehab center in Van in Vancouver, where he uh, started to come up with his idea for um, uh, Skinner Darkly, I, I suppose. Right. So there is a, there is some truth to his mind unraveling possibly due to drugs. And doesn't he do it again, a little forward there where he's kind of like, we didn't know quite what we were doing. Uh, if we had known now what we knew then we wouldn't have played Russian roulette with our brains. I'm paraphrasing, but something along those. Yeah. Lines. Yeah. He does. And, um, I don't believe Anthony's read scanner darkly yet, but, um, uh, but that's one that, um, you know, we're reading in order for the podcast. Right. And some of them I read before I knew we were going to do a podcast and scanner darkly is one of the ones that I read beforehand. And, and, uh, but the, the funny thing is, is that, um, but by the way, he, um, had himself institutionalized once in, in Orange County too. Mm-hmm. And, um, actually we had the chance to meet Tim Powers at a book signing and, uh, who was a great friend of, of Phil's and, and Tim tells a story, uh, about picking Phil up after he had himself committed and then um, asked him to come pick him up. And the story that he told was that when he got out, the first thing he said to Tim was, Tim, if there was a all grand, powerful truth about the universe that instantly drove everyone who's insane, who learned it, would you want to know it? And apparently Tim looked at him and said, no, Phil, <laughs> I don't, <laughs> don't want to know it. Uh, <laughs> but uh and we, we do know that he also, you know, had himself committed once during the, the um, OC years too, after he had uh, gotten himself clean. Uh, so in partially because uh, of his three uh, of his March 74 experiences with the pink laser beam, um, which I'm sure we'll talk about more later. Um, but with the pink laser beam situation there, there were definitely times where he questioned his, his own sanity, uh, during that situation. And, uh, but uh, eventually ended up writing 600 pages about what he thought actually happened. But if you read the exogenous, or if you look at parts of the exogenous, there are definitely times where Phil would, um, you know, question what he, you know, even himself in those moments. And, he also talks about the books that he wrote all through his life and how like they kind of play into, um, especially like the books that are about a private or uh, personal cosmos, your, uh, Ubix, your, uh, maze of death, your, um, eye in the skies. So, you know, they, these are themes that he, he wrote about, uh, often for years. And so the question is, 
are we all in a simulation? Are we all in a, a PKD sim simulation, which he definitely considered and thought about, or was the pink laser beam experience him entering into a private cosmos there? You know, uh, Phil's thinking about those things. And, 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 and that case ends up with books like Valis and, and the exogenous and stuff like that, which are all really interesting and, and cool stuff to read. Of course, we haven't gotten there yet. We're just about to record our maze of death episode. We've just entered the seventies with our last book. Um, our friends from Frolics eight. And, uh, but other than that, we, we've mostly covered the fifties and sixties so far. Right. Um, have you noticed any distinct periods that you can say, oh, yeah, well, this is when he was obsessed with this and this is when he transformed into something else. Have you been noticing that as you've been going uh, in chronological order? Oh, yeah. Um, there's three distinct phases of, of PKD's career. And um, a lot of it has to do with who he's selling books to and, and what he's doing. And, you know, I just noticed because a friend of mine who just started listening to the podcast um, had kind of sent me an email saying that he was going to get the library of America editions of the, the three volume editions of PKD to read it. And when he sent it to me and I, he was like, do you think this is a good place to start? And I started looking at the titles and it was all sixties, seventies and eighties. There was none from the fifties. Hmm. And I actually think that's bad because I think there's some really good stuff in the fifties. Um, and in fact, one of my all-time favorites, although it got totally screwed over by editorial fuckery, um, but uh, Eye in the Sky is, mm -hmm. one, of, is, one, is one of my favorites, mm -hmm. um, which is the first of the private cosmos and kind of like simulation type books. Mm -hmm. um, however, when I say it got screwed over by the editor, uh, Don Wolheim was afraid to attack Christianity with the book. So there's a lot of religious stuff with um, Baha'i faith and it's kind of shoehorned into being about the Baha'i faith when really it, you, nobody could read that and not know that it was originally meant to be Christianity. Just um, Ace didn't have the courage in the fifties to write a book that was that critical of Christianity. And, um, you know, I'd love to adapt eye in the sky for film just so I can change it back to Christianity. <laughs> right. And so, right. so for, for any of the listeners who don't know, do you, uh, what's like the, the little synopsis or log line of eye in the sky? Um, eye in the sky is a book about characters who are in an industrial accident at what's called a Bevatron, which is like kind of like a particle collider. And they end up, well, without giving the spoiler away about where they end up in alternate realities, but I'm not going to explain the, you know, what the alternate realities are made up of and that that's, that's a big twist, but they right. end up in these, they end up traveling between the different, different alternate realities that kind of, uh, relate to the characters. And, mm -hmm. uh, to me, that was PKD's first real masterpiece. That was his, although I, I do like solar lottery and the world Jones made and the man who Jake, the books that are before it, I, I do like quite a bit. And that's one of the things that the thing about the fifties era books is that they're cool because they're written in the fifties and they're so different. Right. And, um, I actually think that the fifties are completely undervalued for that, for that reason. And, and world Jones made might be one of the most 
bizarro books that PKD ever wrote. I mean, it's, it has like these pollen based aliens that are like a metaphor for Jews. And like, he's trying to make this point about like Nazis being bad, which is funny that he felt like he has, you know what I need to make a point about (laughs) Nazis being bad. Right. And then they're very adamant about that. And then there's that entire colony of mutants that are shrunk down that live on a totally like uh, in-house like planet. It's crazy. The world Jones made is crazy. It's three different ideas smashed together and it doesn't totally work, but it's, it's great. Hmm. Yeah. It's one of the weirdest books he ever wrote. And it was number two. So it was the second book he ever wrote and our second book he ever published. It wasn't the second book he wrote, but, uh, but, you know, here's a funny thing. I'm, I'm going to get a big laugh out of Anthony for this. I was listening to the other day. I was listening to the BBC had a has a podcast called Great Lives, and they did an episode on Philip K. Dick. And the first thought is that they thought of Philip K. Dick's life as a great life. I don't know, Phil, if Phil would have felt that way. Right. But uh, but at one point, the, the the academic guest who was presenting PKD's career on this BBC show said, you know, uh, he was talking about flow my tears. The policeman said, and he said, you know, and another thing is, is Philip K. Dick was so great with titles <laughs> and, um, and, and anyone who right. listens to our podcast will get a kick out of that because he was absolutely fucking terrible with titles. Yeah. Brutal. Um, his, it, he was terrible with titles and his editors came up with most of the really great titles that got attached mm. to his books. Mm. Um, and, and some of them are, are just, just awful. And for example, um, you know, I, I don't know. Anyways, he, he had all these terrible titles and right. through the year, yeah, the earth's diurnal course or whatever. It was terrible. And I can't remember which book that was for Dr. Blood money. It was Dr. Blood, Dr. Blood money. Yeah. Yeah. He's got the, well, just, the to kinda, yeah, go just to piggyback a little bit on what David's saying. I agree that the, the fifties era Dick is totally undervalued as well. Cause it's, it's, it's a lot of stuff. He's trying all these different things that he'll become known for later when he's got them a little bit more refined and he has kind of a handle on them and he's not always writing, trying to write a novel in three months. But for example, the man who japed is hilarious and it's so funny. You know, I, I hadn't even heard of it until I started doing this, this for the podcast, you know? Right. And if for anybody who hasn't read the man who japed, it's basically about, it's a post nuclear war environment where they live in this strangely, puritanical world and somebody cuts the head off the statue of their great leader. And, you know, they kind of begin this search for the guy who did it. And the guy finds the head in his closet. It's not a spoiler. It's on the back copy, (laughs) Um, but it gets strangely surreal. The farther you go into the book and it's, I thought it was brilliant. It's one of my favorites that we've read so far. Hmm. Yeah. Man who japed is underrated and, 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 but his humor is something that's totally underrated. I think, you know, this was the thing I, for, I forgot at the beginning that I now remember we were talking about the trickster. And I was saying that all of if you only knew the movies that f- were adapted by Philip K. Dick's book, you would think he would be the most dire, uh, stern writer and you would not get any of the humor. Even do Android's Dream, which became uh, Blade Runner, they, they stripped away all the humor and all the satire from it and they put it they made it straight. You know, you know, I, I yeah. find the same thing goes with like a lot of those books that were satires, like even the handmaid's tale was actually a satire and it becomes so dire and serious when they, uh, transpose it into film form. But I feel like the same thing with Philip K. Dick, he's this trickster who's just messing around with ideas and has this great sense of humor. And all of that gets stripped away when he gets adapted for some reason. 
Right. And well, I have, I have a lot of opinions on that. So <laughs> sorry, David, sit down for a second. Um, uh, be, because, and David knows what I'm going to say. I bring this up all the time, which is I don't really feel like outside of a scanner darkly and probably, um, scanners, which is scanners, no screamers, sorry. Um, which is adapted from second variety. Um, I don't really feel like there's been a very truthful adaptation of Dick's stuff. You know, look, I love Blade Runner like everybody else. I love Total Recall. Um, but they take Dick's idea and they usually turn it into an action movie, mm-hmm. which I, I, I don't Man I know how they feel. Man in High oh, Castle. Yeah. Close. yeah. Man in the High Castle, too. Yeah. Right. Um, and go ahead, Graham. No, I know. I was going to say, uh, you know, I, w- I was going to say, well, it, I think his another one in his 50s era was Time Out of Joint, which sort of became Truman Show in a certain way. But again, yes. it, was t- it was tweaked quite a bit. But um, well, that one had absolutely ripped off Time Out of Joint. Right. 100 percent. The only uh, I, I will give a slight spoiler for Time Out of Joint, but, it, it, you know, it, Truman Show doesn't end up in like a Martian colony or anything like that. But um, it certainly has everything that's the, the same idea, just sort of modernized to the 90s. Right. Um, and it had a sense of humor, a little bit about it. So that maybe there was that one. Yeah, I think Time Out of Joint is actually one of the more serious books of that era. But um but, you know, we just, uh, you know, we're prepping for uh, a maze of death. And, and I was just working on notes before we turned on the, the interview. And uh, my wife, Carrie, and I were laughing about there's a, a whole chapter devoted in that book to or a whole section of the chapter where they're arguing about um, what kind of marmalade they're getting from another colony world. And will they be able to get the marmalade on? And, 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 and you know, like these kind of weird asides about like, you know, marmalade are just the kinds of things that Philip K. Dick is kind of underrated for. And we've never seen in a adaptation outside of I think Scanner Darkly has some of the really funny, like weird trippy moments where like with the, with the guy who sees himself as the bug and all that. And Mm -hmm. so so I do think Scanner Darkly got it and, you know, kudos to Richard Linkletter for, for adapting PKD correctly in that right. way, because uh, really nobody else has. And, um, you know, uh, uh, Terry Gilliam was circling um, World Jones Made at one point to make it, and uh, it's just too bad that never happened, uh, because <laughs> that would have been incredible with a like, kind of a Mighty Python-type feel to, to, to that. And, uh, you know, that, I mean, that would, that would be cool. But I, I just, I do think that... Um, when we're talking about the three phases, right? Mm-hmm. So the fifties, he was writing almost entirely. Almost, the only uh, editor that was buying his long form work was Don Wolheim. And um, when we started the podcast, Don Wolheim was somebody I hadn't heard of. And um, we actually had the great honor to um, interview his daughter, Betsy actually for the show, which is one of the, one of my favorite moments of the podcast, like pretty much ever. And, um, but the thing about Don Wilhelm was that in the early days, uh, Phil basically said that he was writing for an audience of one. He was writing to keep Don Wilhelm happy Hmm. and he was writing books geared towards him. And then there becomes a phase starting with time out of joint where he was able to get published by somebody besides Don Wilhelm. And then eventually, you know, books like Man in the High Castle and stuff, which, um, by the way, we have a great, if we have an interview with, um, 
uh, Barry Maltzberg, the author Barry Maltzberg, who was working for Don Wolheim in the early 60s as a slush reader. And uh, Barry Maltzberg tells the story on our podcast about being in the room with Don Wolheim when he found out that Man in the High Castle, a book he rejected, had been um, nominated, not even hadn't won yet, but nominated for the Hugo Award. And Don Wolheim apparently blew a gasket and started yelling about how it wasn't even science fiction. And, uh, you know, these are kind of some of the things that we've gotten to be a fly on the wall for, but learn by talking to someone like at the beginning of the podcast, I never had the idea that I might be talking to a guy who worked in the slush room, not Barry Mulsford, not only worked at ACE books as a reader, but he also worked at the Scott Meredith literary agency, which was also, uh, PKD's literary agent. So, uh, Mulsford has, uh, lots of really great anecdotes. Um, so definitely people go check out that our interviews are exclusive to YouTube and SoundCloud. They're not on uh, the other platforms. So definitely check that out because that interview is great too. And if you haven't read Barry, before, Maltz- we, before we get too far, guys, I just want to point out something else that Dick is really underrated uh, for is um, his, his ability to craft really effective horror in non-horror novels. Hmm. Yes, indeed. I agree. Yeah. I mean, one of the, one of the most frightening novels that I pretty much ever read in my life is three stigmata of Palmer elders, which is one of the reasons why I think uh, that was a dickhead favorite. I mean, all three of us, I think thought that was, that is the top of the mountain for, so that, for and there are scenes in, Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, it's, it's so interesting that Anthony, you were saying that was one of the first books you read where that's like, you dived into the deep end of Philip J. Dick. Yeah. So, oh yeah. I, I don't know how that ended up being one of your first books, but I, what were you going to say? Oh, I know how. Oh, just, just, <laughs> uh, just that, it, you know, there's, there's scenes and things like I in the sky, the penultimate truth in throughout a lot of these books where you sit back and you think, wow, that was incredibly effective at being horrifying. And I, you know, one of the reasons David and I met and got along is because we're both big horror nerds and Dick in one scene blows half these guys out of the water. He Uh, does in one scene what a lot of these horror writers can't do in a whole novel, hmm. you know, and how do you, uh, how, how do you you think he does that? What is, Oh, I know how I'll tell you how he knows how he does that is because he had a, he think about it. Um, he had a horrifying relationship with reality. In general, Mm. if you're walking to your little shack with your typewriter um, to write a novel and you believe that a giant, like angry God is staring at you your entire walk to go sit at the typewriter, your book's going to be scary. Right. You know, I mean, you're going to you're going to you're going to come off with a frightening book because you're writing about how you see the world. And what's funny, too, is that we see that balance because we also know he's funny and he writes the funny parts because he also had a great sense of humor. His friends all say it that, you know, he could just say random tongue in cheek things that would just crack you up. I mean, he was a very intelligent person, but he was also very tortured and um you know, and he also just, um, went through some, some, some terrible times. And, and that's one of the things I think too, is I think some people like kind of in retrospect, treat him like he was a saint. And, um, and we don't do that. Mm. You know, we, we kind of were a warts and all like, look at it type, you know, podcast. And, um, but I think a lot of that 
came from like the kind of like horrible things he did to himself, uh, chemically Mm -hmm. and, um, and also the never ending self torture that he went through because of what happened with his sister, um, Mm -hmm. dying. Uh, yeah, he was a twin 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 sister, right? Yeah. And his twin sister died, um, a couple days after they were born. And he, for example, for years, thought that the reason that he had too much mother's milk and that he was, you know, basically a bogarted mom and like ended up, you know, killing his sister. And so like that, that, um, disconnect of like where he's afraid that he's in the split reality, which gets all the way to Skinner darkly comes the, the root of that is that is that lifelong, missing twin sister mm-hmm. right it, and, yeah. and that 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 is something that tortured him throughout his whole life and i wonder if that is the root of an undiagnosed schizophrenia or something right like it feels like that it, it feels like that's a, something to latch on to but it, it almost feels to me like can that really be the root cause of his ptsd from this 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 baby that he never knew that or is it like my mind isn't working properly i have all these guilt complexes and these fears and paranoias and so i'm going to just siphon that into this thing to give me an exclamation explanation for it but maybe that came after the fact. I, I don't know. Did you? Did I don't you ever know how much? I don't know how much his mom um, talked right. about. Blamed, it or, or right, 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 right. Blamed right. him, or because right. he he had a kind of a dichotomous relationship with his mother, like very positive at times and very tortured at times, and, and you know, and she supported him financially, like through. Uh, through most of his forties too, like during all the divorces, she bailed him out a lot. And, um, he had like a lot of guilt over that too. So he kind of acted it's out. It's also possible that he's had uh, also an undiagnosed bipolar, you know, there's tons of things that he may have been suffering from that. We only now today would att- attribute a name right. to. Right. Yeah. Um, well, that was a that was a that was a really great introduction, guys. <laughs> Chapter one, the first part of uh, Tilly Dick's career only took us an hour. Let's see how we can go from here. No, but um, what if? Okay, so part two is like the '60s, would you say? And and that's really his more mainstream hits, right? Like that's 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 the the greatest hits. A lot of them that that we know Tilly Dick for. Is that would that say? Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, the '60s pres- is he had a. a, a I think 1964 was the year that he had that was kind of like Stephen King's 1987, right? Where like he kind of exploded in, in, in creativity and had a bunch of novels come out. And that was right after he won the Hugo for Man in the High Castle. And winning the Hugo was a big deal for Phil because he never had like great sales. Um, throughout this era, he continued to get published because Don believed in him. And, uh, you know, one person that we, that we should mention too, that we kind of forgot about was that, um, you know, his original mentor writing wise was Tony Boucher. And anybody who's listened to the podcast knows we, we have a lumbering joke about shout out to Tony because in the early days when we didn't know who Tony Boucher was, we just kept seeing his name, like, um, as this guy who influenced him and, 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 you know, and we did a tribute panel to Tony Boucher and I recommend people go listen to that episode to get more details on that. But Tony Boucher, uh, became the co-founder and editor of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, which is still going today. And, um, a lot of 
the biggest names in the genre got their start at that magazine and Tony Boucher bought the first stories for Richard Matheson and, and Phil K. Dick and, you know, a lot of big names, but he actually lived in Berkeley and he, he was a customer at the record store that Phil worked at. And we wouldn't be here talking about Philip K. Dick. We wouldn't have all these novels if Tony Boucher hadn't like basically taught Phil that it was okay to write science fiction, that it wasn't a kiddie genre, that, that, that serious people were writing science fiction. And, um, because, and Tony Boucher invited him to a writer's group that they had in the Bay area. And he often wouldn't go because of his agoraphobia, but he would send stories <laughs> with other people to be read and he would get feedback that way. And he did go a few times, but, and that's where he met Ray Nelson, whose story inspired they live by the way. And then they wrote Ganymede takeover together. Um, and so Bowser is really important to the story. And I did want to mention Bowser, but this era in the sixties, um, starting with kind of man, the high castle. And then 1964, he published like a ton of novels, the uh, penultimate truth, Ganymede takeover, like a ton, right. Mm-hmm. On this little, but right there. And that was three stigmata, which we consider his masterpiece. And then the late sixties, you know, up to do androids dream and Ubik and, you know, a lot of his biggest classics and his kind of most productive era was this era in the sixties. And then in the seventies, there's kind of a, a bit of a drought, but, um, one of his masterpieces came out of that and that's flow my tears. The policeman said, which were like two or three books away from reading. Mm. And, um, I have read flow my tears. I don't think Anthony has yet. Um, it's one of my and, favorites also. Yeah. It's put it number two, probably actually. Yeah. And it's also one of the first books where he did multiple drafts where like he uh, went back and heavily changed it after the first, because he usually didn't have time for that. Um, you know, we just, uh, we did our friends from Frolics eight last time. And we, one of the hilarious things we did was read some of his, the dog ate my homework letters hmm. to uh, his literary agency where he was like, or to Don Wilhelm, like saying, all these excuses for why his typewriter didn't work or his typewriter was in the chest. I carries laughing. But, um, and you know, he basically was writing these letters like, sorry, Don, uh, my, my typewriter wasn't working and I just can't write on this rental. And, right. you know, meanwhile, he was going through his third divorce or something like that and had other things he was thinking about. Third. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Three, three or four, three or four. Um, so, 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 Anthony, why, uh, why is Palmer Aldrich your favorite? And if you, if for those who don't know, just if you could give, like, what's the tiny little synopsis for that one, and why do you think it's the masterpiece? Oh God, I don't even know if I can encapsulate that book. Uh, basically, Three Stigmata is. <sighs> David, help me out here. <laughs> no, um, uh, I just re-listened to our episode people... on it. Oh, cool, man. Great. So, um, I, I can't figure out the best way to, to explain this. Basically the people that live on this, it's a, like a Mars, Mars, Mars and and they take this drug that takes them to this place of, I believe it's Perky Pat, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. 
right? Which and is so which is referenced in the movie uh, Existence with um, David Cronenberg. If you watch closely, he's drinking Perky Pat uh, Burger and uh, Shake. So, dude, I, I I didn't even realize that until I listened to your episode on Existence. Oh, cool. and I went, oh no way! That's, right. <laughs> That's great. Um, so. I think David's got to take this one because I am struggling to encapsulate this book. No problem. So, so it's one tough. of the things about uh, Three Stigmata is is that it's about um, this this idea that going to Mars would be this horrible, like awful, isolated life. And so, in the book, Earth has become almost unlivable because of um, basically climate change. It's it's the one Cli-Fi novel where he kind of nailed it ahead of time. And, uh, but there are certain people that get drafted. They have to go to Mars. They have to live on Mars. And the only way they can get through it is by taking this drug called, um, candy, Mm -hmm. which, um, basically transports them temporarily into this, um, this doll, like Ken and Barbie, like type lifestyle through that's, you know, through it's called Perky Pat, basically Mm -hmm. like you're living as Perky Pat and like in, in this fake reality. So it's almost like a reverse, it's almost like a reverse time out of joint. Right. And then, um, but, uh, everything changes when, um, this, uh, traveler from outside the solar system comes in with this drug called choosy and, uh, candy is so yesterday because choosy will, um, is a permanent, like eternal trip. And the only problem is that you get a visit from the creator of choosy when you take it. And, um, the first time I read this book, it was so freaking weird. I was like, there's like this moment where you're watching a movie that's so weird. You feel like your head is kind of detached from your body and you're just kind of like, what am I reading? And the first time you read, or it's like, um, I give the example of like, I know most people when they saw Mulholland drive for the first time, mm-hmm. David Lynch movie, you have no idea what's going on. It mm-hmm. doesn't make any sense. But then once you figure it out and you rewatch it, you feel like an idiot because it's so obvious what's happening in Mulholland drive. And I had the same experience the second time I read three stigmata for the podcast. And I don't know if it's because I just read all of his books leading up to it Mm. or if it's just that, okay, now I get it. Right. Mm. One of the best things about it is it's an accumulation of all the stuff we've been watching him kind of play with and work with Mm. up until this point. And it all just locks into place perfectly. Mm. Yeah. And I highly recommend reading that book and listening to our episode. Uh, We had a great guest, um, and not to toot ourselves uh, or push or pat ourselves on the back too hard, but we had a great guest for that episode, J. David Osborne, who's a publisher and writer and um, uh, uh, quite a fan of uh, hallucinogenic drugs. And um, so uh, Osborne gave really, really great um uh, present really great ideas for the episode. Cause like I'm straight edge. So I haven't like even, you know, I haven't drank or done any drugs since I was a sophomore in high school. So a lot of the stuff, that stuff was lost on me. But one of the things that's amazing about three stigmata is, and what I didn't realize until like basically Osborne said it on our show is the three stigmata is definitely a novel about a bad trip. It, right. And, and, but it has all kinds of weird, like Gnostic religious ideas. And it has all the things that the PKD does. And really it's just the, the, the tightest 
you know, sometimes you see a band play and you're like, man, that's the tightest show they've ever played. They were just in sync that night. They just like just were jamming. rolling. Right. Yeah. I don't think PKD at any point in his career was as tight or jamming as hard as he was in 1963 when he wrote the three stigmata of Palmer Eldridge. Um, mm. Because I mean, it, it, he was just he was on fire with that mm. book. Yeah. It, and one, one of the things that I think for me, to answer the second part of that question, Graham, is that I personally think it's a masterpiece because there is on the surface, Palmer Eldridge can be seen as the villain, but is he really a villain when he's offering people an escape from a reality that is basically soul crushing? And I think that that was really ahead of its time to have this kind of three-dimensional, well-rounded, non-mustache twirling villain uh, that you kind of, I, I don't necessarily think he's a bad guy. And I think me questioning that is a testament to Dick's recommendation. At the same time, I'd be honest, uh, the book really speaks to me as somebody who works a nine-to-five job all the time and wishes that I could just take drugs and not do it, you know? Right. So Absolutely. It's a, it's a perfect escapism. You know, I, I've read it once. I, I, I am in that category where it was just like like what the fuck did i just read and um so it's that's why it's not my favorite because it's just like is is this like can you mm-hmm. actually follow this logic or is it just like mayhem on a page yeah, and definitely you guys are saying it again. That, yeah definitely read it again yeah 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 because yeah i there's stuff i picked up on the second time and when well, even now like as as you guys now see even i still struggle to really encapsulate what that book is about because i, I think it's definitely going to affect everybody differently Right. And one of the most genius parts in the book, and we talked about it a lot on our podcast, is there, there's just this there's this part where the Martian um, colonists like have this realization that they've worked their ass off to try and cultivate this garden, but the Martian soil is so dead and unnatural for Earth seeds that it's just like they've worked their asses off, and all they have is this awful dust, and they're just like fuck. And there, there, it's one of those things where like, it can be greatly overlooked as far as, you know, that Phil was just really tapping into something of like, just, he was really hating his life writing in the hovel and having to go there. And like, he didn't like the environment he was writing in. And so he was expressing so much anger at the, at the isolation that he was feeling and it's really funny because um, and we joked about it in our, on our episode because it's like because Anne, his wife at the time, just would not let him write in the house. And so it's like we're, we kept joking about, you know, what the hell? Why was he so weird that she was just like, nope, you are not writing in the house. You are going somewhere else to do this. And, it, you know, he was taking jars full of, you know, speed to write. So I don't know if he was sitting there like, ah, you know, like freaking out or what, right, right. but she's like, go do it there. Right. And, um, you know, and then eventually this, this, uh, this third era of PKD is kind of the post pink laser beam. Right. right. And that was 1974, which by the way, he was being shot by the pink laser beam on March 18th through the 20th of 1974. And I was born on March 19th. So coincidence, I don't know, but so so for, for people who don't know what the laser beam is, what's what's, what's the laser beam period of Philip Dick's life? (laughs) 
Yeah. Hold on, David. Did you just weirdly flex about possibly being the result of Dick's pink laser beam baby? Hey, I've been doing that, dude. Yeah, it is a weird flex, but uh, maybe it's all meant to be. Maybe you being on this podcast and doing all this dicky and stuff, it's like a reincarnation. Maybe you're Palmer Eldridge. Maybe there's maybe something well, else is going on. No, don't, don't boost his ego any more than it is. <laughs> no, 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 this is just that's you too, Anthony, because hopefully one day we're going to be adapting uh, Three Stigmata as a television show. That's one of our. Like, oh, I, that's my dream. Yeah. How, how do so, we know we're not on Mars right now being uh, having reality disguised as a, you know, 2020? era we don't know yeah yeah i will gladly take it over having a day job yes give it (laughs) so what happened was that um phil had was getting a can't remember he had some kind of injury i'm brain farting on what it was at the time but he was getting a he got a prescription for some painkillers and um they were being delivered to the house wasn't it just a dentist wasn't it like novocaine or something like that Yes, yes, he had had something like, yeah, he was having some pain from the dentist. You, I, right. You're right. I think he had his wisdom teeth removed, but I could, don't quote me on that. Yeah, so um, these painkillers show up, and um, and the the woman that, de- that delivered it was wearing a necklace with, like, kind of a Jesus fish on it. And when the light hit the, the, the medallion as he opened the door, he claimed that this reflection shot a a pink laser beam directly into his brain, which over the next three days was downloading and processing this giant info dump from God basically. And which he ended up writing 600 pages and two or three novels, uh, based on this experience, um, which, um, he eventually wrote a novel called Valis, which stands for vast living intelligence system. And, so whether God was this um, AI or this kind of intelligence system or whatever it was, he had all kinds of theories on on what happened. And, and you know, one of the experiences that, that kind of differentiates us from some of the people who kind of treat Phil saintly and, and all this stuff is that there's people who will get very mad at you if you kind of imply that there's that 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 he really didn't get a pink laser beam from God. Mm. And and to be honest, Phil wasn't sure mm. that's what he thought happened. But there were many times in the exogenous where he has a sides basically saying, maybe I'm crazy. Maybe this is insane. This is all stuff in my novel. Go ahead, Anthony. Oh, I, I just got to, I want to pop in before, before, uh, before old Bertrand shows up to tell you it's exegesis. Right. Yeah. Not exogenous. Right. And so Valis was you on your toes, David. (laughs) Valis is, is when he started to believe that we are living in a computer generated, uh, simulation, a computer program, and we were being duped by an evil trickster God basically. Uh, uh, right. And then we're all sort of being tested, uh, in this simulation. Uh, Yes. And, the first time he really openly talked about this in public was long before he actually wrote Vallis, which was in 1977. He spoke at a conference in France and you can watch this lecture uh, on YouTube and you should. Uh, and you can listen to the, the clip from our uh, intro song. So please, uh, that is where it comes from. Yes. And this, this speech that he gave in France, which by the way, he, you think about an agoraphobic, 
sci-fi writer from orange County, like going, getting on a plane and going to France. Like you can, you watch that video and see how fucking uncomfortable that guy is. Um, like just being there. Um, even though in France, like is where, he was probably most beloved in his right. life lifetime because most of the accolades and fame and things for Phil happened after his death. And, and, and so, but this speech in France is basically where he lays out the plot of the matrix, um, right. in 1977. And you'll see a lot of the videos on YouTube that the quote this will say, did Phil K Dick predict the matrix in 1977 or, you know, like Phil P. Dick talking about the matrix in 1977. No, he doesn't talk about Neo or right. whatever, but he, he talks about the idea of living in a simulation and, and basically he does it not in the, uh, Hey, we could be living in a computer generated reality. He basically straight up says we are living, we are living in a computer simulated, um, reality. Now he looks real like, like when he's giving the speech and he looks very stern and serious. And I think that has to do with the agoraphobic guy having to have sat on a plane across the Atlantic and show up in France and have all these people with French accents telling him how much they loved him before he got up on stage. But I think his intention when he left California was to kind of have his tongue halfway in his cheek, Mm -hmm. you know, and kind of like, present these ideas, but it comes off very serious Mm -hmm. in it. But my personal feeling is somebody who studied a lot of, of Dick and, and a lot of these things think that has, I think that has more to do with the agoraphobia mm. than actually him being serious. And I don't know if anybody else feels that way, but just me personally, that's what I feel. Interesting. Um, and, yeah. and that's, that's just my personal theory. Mm. So, so I, I've, I've read Val's exit, Exigies. I've I've like skimmed through it. That's, that's like insane. That's an insane novel, and it's almost like a rolling it's not a novel. Journal. It's just a journal. It's, it's just a journal, journal. right? Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's. In, I I don't know if he goes into it in detail there. Like like you said, sometimes he thought he was insane. Sometimes he didn't. Um, but I, I'm still just fascinated with the fact that like. In, in 1977, no one was talking about computers, simulations. I mean, the fact that he lived in Silicon Valley down the street from Steve Jobs and Wozniak, who were inventing the personal computer, is kind of blows my mind. And I wonder if that was just in the air in Silicon Valley, which, was, of course, wasn't called Silicon Valley yet, I don't think. It might have been because they were doing silicon chips for IBM. Um, but I just think that's it was so forward-thinking and so interesting for him to be thinking that way. Do you think it has any connection to the geography of where he was, or is it something completely separate? Uh, well, I think he's been thinking about robots since um, he was a little kid, reading stories by Harry Bates and A.E. von Vogt. And, you know, he, he was reading science fiction basically since he was a little kid. And I think the ideas about computer realities and, um, and Superman and like all these things were things he'd been thinking about since he was a little kid. And then you add all the drugs and all the sixties influence and Berkeley in the sixties. And you add all that. There's, there's a lot that goes into the mix where he was probably thinking about things ahead of his time. And, and, you know, it's just, but I think being in that environment though, being in that environment at that time would definitely have an effect on anybody. So, cause he was there. True. So, True. so, so I think there's definitely an influence of that. It might not be at the forefront of his mind when he's writing, but I think it's definitely, it's definitely got to be there because that's where he lives, where he was doing all this stuff, you know? Right. 
Right. It, yeah. Like we, we take in stuff from our environment and, and our everyday lives and put it in our stuff all the time. Right. So, yeah. so, so I agree with you, Graham. I think that there's something to that. Hmm. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not totally disagreeing with it. I'm just saying, I think that he thought about, I was thinking about that stuff for a long time, but you know, he grew up in a very, um, forward thinking town, uh, right. you know, Berkeley in the era. Um, and you know, we, before we came on the air, we were talking about the fact that he went to high school, the same high school as Ursula Gwynn, although they did not know each other right. long afterwards, they became fans of each other's work yeah. later, but they didn't know each other in high school. And, and, um, you know, our friend of the podcast, David Gill, who's by the time this gets out, our interview with him will be up. And in that interview, Gill talks about the fact that it, there, if you look at where Ursula Gwynn's house was and where Philip K. Dick's childhood home apartment was, they were a tale of two different lives in one city. Both became science fiction writers, but Le Guin came from privilege hmm. and Dick came from working class, which is if you want to get down to the brass tacks of like what makes Philip K. Dick so unique compared to a lot of other writers, almost the number one thing is that um, Philip K. Dick did not write heroes. He did not write, um, you know, a chiseled superhero. You know, it's funny when you see Tom Cruise and Harrison Ford play roles right. in his in movies based on his work because all of his characters are flawed. Like he basically wanted all of his characters to be flawed jerks um, in working class and just nobody's like generals or like super soldiers or whatever. And um, well, I think the closest we come to a character like that is the lead in Dr. Futurity. Sure. Which is, you know, not mm. our favorite. Right. <laughs> uh, well, well, even, even bringing up uh, David Cronenberg again, you know, he had worked on uh, total recall for a year and he was going to do use like William hurt as like the lead, which would have been much more of a more Philip K. Dickian character than obviously Arnold Schwarzenegger. You couldn't be further from a Dickian character. And that's, that was based on what uh, do, uh, will, will dream it for you wholesale or will uh, uh, we can remember it for you. Remember wholesale. it for you wholesale. Yeah. Yeah, but if they'd done that, we wouldn't have had. If I'm not quid, then who the hell am I? <laughs> exactly. So, I'm not I complaining. Lose that. Hey, I'm not <laughs> complaining. I'm not complaining. Oh, I love Total Recall. It's not a good adaptation, but I love it. I actually think Total Recall is way better than the short story, which is basically a punchline. Really. Eventually, though, I'm gonna I'm gonna bully the other two guys on Dickheads into watching the other Total Recall movie. I'm going to do it. I don't care. The new one. You mean. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's bad. Right. Uh, yeah. It's pretty bad. Um, so I, you know, I, I could stay here all night. I'm going to try to keep it down here. So uh, we were just talking about, you know, Phil Kedick having this, um, sort of blue collar background and a lot of people talk about him being a pulp sci-fi writer. Do you, where do you put him in the pantheon of great sci-fi writers? Like what's your Mount Rushmore? Do you put him on there? Some people do, some people don't. Cause you've got, you know, your, your sort of classic sci-fi guys, um, uh, you know, Arthur C. Clarke or, um, Isaac Asimov. Um, and, you know, even in comparison to if you read Ursula Le Guin, she's so polished and she's so thorough in her ideas. And you could just tell she languished over every word. Whereas well, her parents, her parents were famous anthropologists, right? Whereas, whereas Philip K. Dick, you know, one year he wrote eleven novels or something, so he was clearly had a different uh, mentality. So, what do you guys feel about that? You can say that I absolutely would put him up there uh, on the the Mount Rushmore of sci fi writers because you know 
who else is at the time and even maybe more so now, but Dick is so uniquely Dick. You know, whereas you look at something like Asimov or even Le Guin, there is a kind of fantasy bent to a lot of their sci-fi. It's a lot of heroes journeys. Hmm. Whereas I, I think Dick is, is more exploring kind of the self philosophy and all these kind of more strange ideas that I think there's no other writer like him. It's why I, I love his work so much. Mm-hmm. Well, and for me, I would put him on the Mount Rushmore of the sixties new wave. I, I, you know, the, the Mount Rushmore of science fiction itself wouldn't super appeal to me because I do think that would be your Heinlein's, your, your, your Asimov's and then be like, (laughs) but, um, and I'm, it's not that I don't read those authors and I do, but comparatively, but for me that the, the sixties new wave is the most exciting era of sci-fi. And I, my Mount Rushmore for sixties new wave would be Bruner, Le Guin, PKD, and maybe, what about Harlan? You going to throw Harlan on there or he just, he doesn't count. Short stories. Well, for me, I'd say Spinrad, but, um, I, I, I would put Spinrad on there who is a former guest on the show. And, um, but, and, and also if people are thinking too, and like, these are the names that, that if you're saying like, Hey, PKD is great, but you know, I want to explore other authors from the new wave. If you, if you just, just on pure science fiction, storytelling and writing, I actually think John Bruner, who's British, the British PKD, basically, I think Bruner is better than PKD. Honestly. Um, I think stand on Zanzibar is the greatest science fiction novel of the 20th century. Me personally, uh, sheep look up is one of the greatest horror novels ever written by John Bruner. Um, Le Guin wrote the word for our, for world is forest and the dispossessed, which is incredible. Spinrad wrote amazing stuff. We've covered him many times in the podcast. Barry Maltzberg is another author from that era who we've interviewed, who I think Barry Maltzberg um, wrote a lot of crazy, weird sci-fi. So, you know, there, he has contemporaries that, that were out there doing the same kind of thing. And we've covered a lot of those in our Dick adjacents. And I think Anthony and I both agree what uh, the other greatest sci-fi novel of the 20th century uh, that's up there that we covered on those show with Brian Evanson was uh, a canical for Leibowitz. And, mm-hmm. and I would put that up there as, as a must read. I think mm-hmm. we both agree on that. And, um, but I think well, I would also drop Lem on there too, because I think Solaris is mm-hmm. a brilliant book. Yeah. Oh yeah. Lem is, Lem is incredible as well too. His master's voice um, is, is kind of an underrated masterpiece too for Lem at uh, Futurological Congress. Great. And, and so here's the thing is like, we've kind of forced ourselves through this process in, in, in doing this podcast to kind of do some, some adjacent reading. Um, and, uh, through doing that adjacent reading, we've kind of discovered like the depth of some of these other new wave writers. And, and, and that's, that's really great. And, and for just for, ah, sorry, I dropped it, but stand on Zanzibar. Uh, we did cover it on the podcast uh, in the Dick, Adja- Dick Adjacent series, and I, that's the one that I was saying I think is, is the best. Okay. Yeah, and then we find out we don't like stuff that we thought we would like to in a lot of those Dick Adjacents, because it turns out as much as I like Verhoeven's Starship Troopers adaptation, I detest the novel. Hmm. 
I actually like, think our episode on Starship Troopers, which was an April Fool's episode where we did Heinleiners for April Fool's, um, I actually think that episode is popular just because of how much Anthony hated um, <laughs> the novel. But we've you covered we've Stranger covered Strange Land too, I think, right? Yeah, we covered three Heinlein novels mm-hmm. and uh, did not like any of them, mm-hmm. really. Uh, Starship Troopers was the one I liked the best of the three, and that's saying something because I wasn't. I at least thought it was a good story. I just didn't like the fascism of it. Mm-hmm. And then, um, Moon, did Moon is a Horse Mistress? Did you do that one as well? We did Moon is a Horse Mistress, and and uh, with really great guests, um, I, I highly recommend that episode. But yeah, we ended up like not really liking Moon is a Horse Mistress to the point where my, one of my guests, one of our guests, a regular guest on our show, uh, journalist uh, Mark Conlon, actually sent me an email afterwards, and he was like, "Were we a little?" too hard on Heinlein for this episode. And I was like, right. nope. Heinlein's one of those guys. I can appreciate him. But I don't enjoy, I don't necessarily enjoy reading it. I mean, it's like a rune is a harsh mistress is like, okay, this is a, uh, a architectural blueprint for how to overthrow a government that is trying to subvert you in some way or something like that. But it's so detailed and so thorough that, um, yeah, it kind of gets bogged down <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. I'm not uh, quite sure. I don't remember a lot of my criticisms of it because I've kind of tried to block that book from my mind, but, um, our episode is out there and, and that happened because, um, I decided I, after I had accidentally read three of the Hugo winners of the sixties. And since that's my favorite decade of science fiction, I decided to read all the Hugo winners of the sixties. And so we've covered most of them. They're all recorded. Uh, we just are taking our sweet time releasing them. And, um, but we've covered, um, and, and we, like one of the episodes we've recorded that we haven't released yet, um, is we covered the wanderer by Fritz Lieber, which has anarchist sex cats in it. So you just prepare yourself for the episode about Fritz Lieber's anarchist sex cats book. Um, because that actually won the Hugo and it'll blow your mind that a book that's stupid, uh, won the fucking Hugo. And so if you want to see me really hate on a book, um, that that was pretty it was pretty harsh okay. yes anarchist sex cats that's Got what it. the wanderer has in it very cool uh okay three rapid fire questions here then we'll uh we'll start uh, calling it calling it calling it night here uh okay um you sort of said one of them your personal favorite philip k dick it was a uh, three stigmata of palmer algae for both of you or am i putting words in your mouth um three stigmata palmer eldridge yes with a close second for eye in the sky how about you anthony three stigmata is definitely my number one a close second is probably i'm looking at the books over here because my memory is the worst uh i'm gonna probably say clans of the alphane moon would be my 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 yeah (laughs) i have not i have not touched that one i gotta check that out that's great um Okay, uh, this may these may overlap. Most underrated. What, what's the hidden gem? Ooh, well, Ooh. I got to look at the shelf here. Um, <laughs> as I as I as I look over at these books, I got to <laughs> shout out again to the man who japed Vulcan's yeah. hammer. You know, these are all books that are totally underrated. They're 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 fun. They they have this kind of weirdness about them that I don't see a lot of genre books at the time kind of kind of throwing out there i love the penultimate truth i think the penultimate truth is brilliant yeah um 
Falcon's Hammer is one of the universally considered one of his worst novels. And um, we didn't, we all liked Falcon's Hammer, which mm. was interesting because a lot of people really hate Falcon's Hammer. Um, and uh, I, I mean, we joke a lot about it because the one that we hated universally the most was the cosmic puppets. So anytime we joke about something just sucking, we're like, is it cosmic puppets? bad? <laughs> is it like, because we really, really hated cosmic mm. puppets. But I would have to say, yeah, it earned us our first troll. So nice. nice. Yeah, that we have a. There's a guy who absolutely is so angry with us about hating on cosmic puppets that he spent two solid weeks writing us angry hate mail oh, wow. over Facebook. He created an entire Facebook account to troll us. Wow, about how much we hated cosmic puppets, and um, we didn't back down on that. I would have to say, underrated would either be. Um, yeah, Eye in the Sky is super underrated, and then uh, um, probably World Jones made. Because even though it's it's kind of a failed experiment, it is so goddamn weird. If people want to read Philip K. Dick to see weird, you you should read um, The World Jones Made, because that is funny, weird, and just kind of insane. And it's from the 50s, so... Got it. I mean, Never. the year it was written and released was when, like... Elvis was shaking his hips to, to um, Heartbreak Hotel as right. the number one song. And just to tell you how old it is right. and for it to have like transsexual, like hermaphrodite, like circus sex workers and like wow. all kinds of just like stuff that you like in the fifties, it's, it's pretty crazy. Wow. I'm to throw one more in there because I think it's worth noting a galactic pot healer. I thought was awesome. Yeah, cool. yeah, you did love Galactic Pot Healer a lot. And by the way, our other and, co-host Larry freaking hated Galactic Pot Healer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and for anybody that doesn't know, Galactic Pot Healer is about uh, these individuals who are recruited to kind of reassemble this underwater cathedral. And there's this kind of these warring, these weird warring factions going on on this planet. Oh, it's great! It's so surreal! It's so strange! It's Dick. It's D- Dick being funny, being weird, being creepy. Uh, I love Galactic Popular. So, yeah, I think that would be up there, too. Cool. Cool. I got a lot of reading to do. Um, OK, so for the new Philip K. Dick readers, uh, where would you have them start? Well, see, that that's hard because I would have to know what kind of science fiction they like. Do they like really smart, really thoughtful science fiction? Do they like super weird? Do they like... Uh, Gnostic things? Do they like... How about... Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's impossible to say. Why don't we say, um, as a general uh, average reader of science fiction, which is the book do you make uh, them read that they would then want to read another Philip K. Dick book? I would say Scanner Darkly. Hmm. I would say Scanner Darkly. I can't say I I agree because I haven't read that one yet. I'm going to say Eye in the Sky from the ones I've read so far. Okay. Yeah, I mean, or jump into the deep end like I did with three stigmata. Just do it. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, so I really love Man in the High Castle, but uh, you know, for Anthony, he really did not like Man in the High Castle because I think Man in the High Castle. What I like about it is how subtle it is and how you know the ideas are really. Um, it, it's just oh, a very- Man in the High Castle. I can acknowledge that it's a good book. It's just not the book for. Me. It's just it didn't, didn't do anything for, for me. Yeah, right. yeah, it just didn't work for me. 
Yeah. And, and, I, for me, it's the same thing where I just don't want to sit down and, and, and read a book about Nazis having taken over America. It's just not, it's just not the content that I'm interested in seeing from Phil Kadic, but I think also that it is like, it's, it's considered his best written book because it was supposed to be his mainstream. Uh, <laughs> you're going to say something man in the high castle. Like one thing that I was very clear on in our episode was man in the high castle is not a novel about look how scary it is when the Nazis take over. That's not what the book's about. Right. Man in the high castle is about history being bullshit. Oh, really? I thought you were going to say that, oh, America is actually fascist state. And it was just using that Nazis as a metaphor. Oh, okay. Interesting. Okay. Man in the high castle is very much about how, you can't rely on stories and history and how everything that you're taught um, could possibly be bullshit. Mm. And, and that's what man in the high castle is about on, mm. on a, on a deeper level. And well, you got to do so much heavy lifting to get there, man. <laughs> I think it's worth it. I think it is so worth it. And, and one of, that's one of the things that as much as I said that the adaptation was a pretty good adaptation, that's one thing that they did not get right on the TV show because they didn't, you know, they did kind of eventually turn it into like, ooh, scary Nazis like are bad. But um, basically, you know, th that whole concept, the idea that history is written by the victors. Right. And so this the idea of man, in the high castle is, is is basically like, you know, you know, if Phil wrote a lot about what is reality and he's through the lens of history, he's asking the question, what is reality? And, you know, is history written by the victors mm -hmm. and what does it mean for, for history in, in that sense? And then there is some science fiction ideas and people moving between, but, but, but don't tell Don Wolheim it's science fiction. Cause he almost threw Barry Maltzberg out of his office right. uh, over it. And, and, you know, in that sense, I, I would say, but I don't think that there's one outside of cosmic puppets. There's, not a book that I really like regretted reading. Um, I kind of regretted reading cosmic puppets. Um, and, uh, but you know, for the most part, there's, there's ideas in all of them that, that I'm happy I read. Nice. Great. Um, all right. So then, um, you guys sort of touched on it. Uh, what's next for you? You guys are writing, uh, you're continuing with the podcast. Um, what, what do you got anything to the pitch or do you got anything to tell the audience? Yeah, sure. Um, well, for one thing, we're almost done because we've, we've entered the seventies, although we are going to cover all the novels that, that his mainstream novels that got published after his death. So that'll be kind of an anticlimactic ending, but, um, but at the same time, you know, we probably got another year left of the podcast to get through all of it. And, um, and at this point, uh, but as far as our own career, um, I, uh, I'm a, you know, we're both writers. I have this novel, Goddamn Killing Machines, which I think would appeal to your listeners as a science fiction novel. It's kind of think about, think of it as like the Dirty Dozen if uh, Philip K. Dick wrote it. And to, yeah, and together, Anthony and I, um, we wrote a novel together um, called Nightmare City that we're trying to find a home for. And it's basically like, imagine the wire if um, Clive Barker and Phil K. Dick were on the writing staff is kind of the way we. That's awesome. My God, I love it. I want to read both these. I got to get them. I got a lot of reading to do. Yeah, well, Nightmare City is not out yet. And then we just also finished a, um, a screenplay called uh, Battle at the uh, Tower of God, which 
Um, we can't talk about the plot, but, um, but we might turn that into a novel as well. And then Anthony has a new book out, so he can tell you about that. Yeah. So I, uh, it, it's kind of weird. I ended up co-writing the third in a trilogy with, uh, author Ryan C. Thomas, who's kind of a known cult horror author. He wrote the summer I died, uh, born to bleed and some other books. He did this series called hissers, which is basically more of like body horror types and like zombie type of stuff. And, uh, I ended up co-writing hissers three, uh, fortress of flesh with him, which we uh, just did the layouts for. And it should be out probably the end of this month or early June. I'm hoping. Okay, great. Oh, and, uh, one other thing too, is I do a personal podcast called, um, oh boy, here we go. <laughs> Shameless plug. Uh, I do a podcast called uh, postcards from a dying world based on, I have a blog that has over a but like almost 1200 book reviews. Cause I write book reviews of everything I read. And, um, so I have a he podcast. Does. Yep. Um, Amazing. and we have over, I have already 45 episodes already with interviews with different authors that, um, including Stephen Graham Jones, Josh Mallerman, who wrote bird box. And, um, we just did a tribute episode to Richard Matheson. So, nice. um, and you can get, postcards on any, um, podcast platform. And, um, I'm going to have Anthony on the podcast soon too. We're going to do an episode arguing about Prometheus and, Oh, we're doing it. We're doing it there. Huh? We're, yeah. we're, we're going to go to the mat to, to finally settle the score of is Prometheus a bad movie. <laughs> also, I've been weightlifting for it for years, dude. Nice. And we're I, also I wonder good. which one of you, which side of the argument you're on. That's what I'm curious about. But oh, I'm pro pro Prometheus. You're pro Prometheus uh, and, and very anti. I, I I have to side with Anthony on this one. Uh, well, see, I, I might be able to convince you. But listen, uh, we're also we also I also dude in the octagon. I'm ready. <laughs> we've, we, we've been, we've been requested many times to do uh, dark city and video drums. So we may have to do that on postcards, but, um, but at the same time we could do it for dickheads because they are Phil K Dick themed, but, uh, but you know, um, in our most popular episode of our movie episodes was, uh, was Anthony hating, uh, adjustment bureau, uh, um, the, the movie or the book or the story. Both, both. We, we were not fans of both. See, a lot of the early P uh, PKD short stories were almost just like punchlines. And whoa, 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 Slow down. Sorry, Graham. I don't mean to keep you later than you intend. Um, <laughs> not at all. This is awesome. <laughs> adjustment team has, I believe, a talking dog, which does have is hilarious. Yes. Adjustment Bureau. I like adjustment team as it is. It is just a punchline, but man, adjustment Bureau really rubbed me the wrong way. Yeah, and, and it is true that um, Adjustment Team, the story, the original PKD story, did have a talking dog. And one of the best things about the talking dog in the story is it is absolutely not explained. It's just <laughs> kind of there. The dog just says something and another character wanders off. Oh, he just wow. kind of nods. He's like, yep, dog. This is normal. Right. Yeah. Right. And uh, so that was kind of cool. Right. But um, yeah, the short stories are a mixed bag, but. Um, and that actually would be a good first thing to read. If you're going to you have first thing to read, um, second variety might mm -hmm. be the greatest thing PKD ever wrote. Second um, variety is incredible. And I think screamers is a good adaptation of it to, to, to a degree, but second yeah, variety, the story itself is, is, is top notch. It, it should be noted that Dan O'Bannon wrote the screenplay for that and total recall. And, um, 
you know, we it's we lost Dan O'Bannon, so we can't. Uh, and Alien didn't didn't he write Alien too? He did he did, and he wrote uh, Return of the Living Dead. Um, but he, Dan O'Bannon uh, went to film school with John Carpenter, so that's where he got his start. So Dan O'Bannon um, may be more responsible for the resurgence of Phil K. Dick than anybody else because, and is super underrated in the story because. He spent most of the seventies trying to get a screenplay based on second variety and total recall made in the seventies. And that's what kind of got Phil on the radar for, um, Blade Al- runner for Blade runner of, because like, what, what is this thing? Also John Lennon buying the film rights to Ubik, uh, Ubik, um, probably had a big deal to do with it too. Cause right. that was a pretty big deal. But Dan O'Bannon worked with Ridley Scott and alien and then Ridley Scott did Blade Runner. So that perfectly connects actually. Yeah. And, and uh, one of our white whale guests is somebody that I would love to have on the podcast eventually. And we we're working on it is uh, Diane O'Bannon, Dan's um, widow, because I, I, I just think his role with PKD, even if, you know, she might not know enough, of, a lot about, Dan's relationship with Phil's work, but that's not really my concern is my, my, I would like the dickheads to show love to Dan O'Bannon's career. Uh, just because yeah, of, absolutely. Because of it's the role, totally... the role he played. Yeah. Yeah. And I just think Dan O'Bannon outside of other writers I know who are primarily like screenwriters, I feel like Dan O'Bannon's totally underrated and undervalued as in general. And I think we'd love to do a tribute episode to his career. Yeah. So we may just do that eventually anyways, because I think just like Tony Boucher and Don Wilhelm, uh, these editors and, and different filmmakers and things that, that, you know, played a role, uh, it, it would be, you know, it would be a big deal, but, and yeah, and I definitely recommend if, if people like the panel that we did on Tony Boucher, we got the current publisher of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction on that, uh, uh, academic Gary Wolf and, um, F Paul Wilson, who wrote the introduction to Boucher's amazing, um, mystery novel rocket to the morgue, which was written in the forties about, uh, science fiction, writers group in LA with a locked door murder mystery that has loosely based characters, loosely based on L Ron Hubbard and Robert Heinlein. Hmm. So definitely check out that, but rocks to the morgue. It's, it's, it's amazing. Hmm. And, um, and it just, uh, a, a little nugget of sci-fi history. It's really cool. Nice. Cool. So, um, I guess everyone can just Google dickheads, but where uh, specifically can they find you guys? Well, the best place is our SoundCloud. Um, we're not on Apple Podcasts because they think we're a penis podcast. Um, <laughs> is that true? We're still we're still uh, outside banging on the door of iTunes. So. <laughs> yeah, um, Apple will not let us on because they they think um, that we're we're a podcast about dicks. Dicks. That's uh, um, yeah. So uh, you can find us on Spotify and uh, like most most podcatchers, but we're on YouTube and SoundCloud. And so subscribing to us on one of those platforms, Spotify does not have the Dick adjacent or the, that just has the book episodes. And, um, but SoundCloud has everything and YouTube has most things, um, for, for, you know, if you want to see, um, our, us laugh at each other, um, you can see it on YouTube and, 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 and I think that's like one of the best sources, but, um, but you know, some of the Dick adjacent episodes of what really blew it up. We did the, the one on Dune has almost like a thousand list uh, plays mm-hmm. on SoundCloud, which just blows my mind. And then, 
um, Anthony's interview with Tessa Dick is a must listen. Mm-hmm. Um, nice. uh, you know, Phil's last fifth wife, um, and, uh, listener of our podcast, uh, we love Tessa. Um, cause it's funny cause she'll sometimes comment on when we post episodes on Facebook, you know, um, adding things and it's really cool. Like for example, when we posted our canicle for Leibowitz Dick adjacent episode, she just let us know like, Oh, Hey, Phil loved that book. Mm-hmm. And then it was just cool to hear her say like, yeah, Phil loved that book you just talked about. It was neat. Totally. Yeah. Because these are, and, and it's cool to talk to the people that knew Phil because you know, we, we kind of know Phil as an idea and they knew Phil as a person. Right. Absolutely. Cool. Well, this was awesome guys. I'm so glad you guys uh, came on and, uh, and just talked about Phil K. Dick and hopefully, uh, you know, gave our listeners something to think about and some books to, to read. So, um, so thank you for teleporting into this world cast of simulation nation, whether you're with us in virtual reality, uh, not today or 2d or listening to the podcast a week from now on Spotify or iTunes. And remember to subscribe to our Instagram at the simulation nation, Twitter, at SimNation VR, Facebook, and Discord, and join us next week for our interview with Ali from VR Digital Citizens, who bring moral, spiritual, and philosophical discussions to the metaverse. Until then, stay plugged, my friends.